This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I feel like we've been doing this podcast together for about a year. Maybe we need to think a little bit about the branding, maybe workshop a catchphrase in there or something. Slap it onto a lunchbox, maybe? Yeah, potentially. Um, something that would be, you know, marketable to the general audience. Sur- searches for the sacred on screen, not cutting the mustard. We really need to, you know, go whole hog into something that looks good in a, in a very splashy font, maybe. Mm-hmm. With capes, definitely. <laughs> Well, we'll get right to work on that, listeners, but for now, we're going to record this episode. We are going to be talking about a superhero whose little catchphrase challenged himself. It's Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Black Adam. And then, listeners, we're going to take a turn for the spooky in time for Halloween. Uh, Kevin has picked 28 Days Later for our watch list pick this episode. So looking forward to talking both superheroes and zombies. Yeah, and looking forward to workshopping that catchphrase, maybe off the air. (laughs) But for now, we'll jump into the reviews on episode 355 of Seeing and Believing. Black Adam. What have your powers ever given to you? Nothing but heartache. I was a slave until I died. Then I was reborn a god. My son sacrificed his life to save me. Welcome to episode 355 of Seeing and Believing. This is going to be the last episode before Halloween hits, so mm-hmm. spooky season is upon us. Yeah, I guess it depends on how scary you think like major blockbuster movies are as well. I feel like spooky season may have shown up on time-ish. Maybe. Uh, I do. I did appreciate that it's shown up on time at your house. So listeners, we, we usually, re- our recording studio is typically at, at Sarah's place and you've gone all out. You've got like the spider webs out front, the, mm-hmm. the jack-o'-lanterns. I have a skeleton hoodie that I've been wearing around the house basically all week. Yeah. yeah t- tis the season and all that. We are going to be getting into the Halloween spirit with our watch list pick. We're going to be talking about the zombie movie 28 Days Later in that bit. But we're going to go maybe a slightly less spooky. We're going to ease into things a little bit with our discussion of the new superhero movie Black Adam starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Here's the film's official synopsis. Nearly 5,000 years after being immortalized in legend for liberating the Mesopotamian nation of Kandak from oppression, Teth Adam is magically freed from his tomb in the modern day by a woman seeking to keep an ancient artifact of immense power 
out of the hands of the international cartel that has present-day Kandak under its thumb. The twist is that Teth Adam, the Black Adam of the title, was not slumbering so much as he was imprisoned for the murderous uses to which he puts his powers, and his awakening sets the Justice Society, including superheroes like Hawkman and Dr. Fate, on his trail to subdue him. So Sarah, this is a movie that has been a long time coming, at least for its star. Uh, Johnson famously has had this as his dream project for over a decade Mm -hmm. um, before finally getting the chance to make it here in 2022. So my question for you to get us started is maybe just, was it worth the wait? (laughs) Uh, mm, I feel like you should probably be asking more of a DC fan that question, potentially. (laughs) I wasn't even aware of Black Adam as a character until this movie came out. So to be perfectly fair, um, I'm a little bit of a comics newbie. Even being a comics newbie, I don't know that the movie was necessarily worth the wait. I didn't hate it. It, it was, which is a very, you know, is an extremely <laughs> like bold vote of confidence in favor of this movie. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It just kind of felt like it was there as an action movie and also as a comic book adaptation and also just as a vehicle for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And maybe we can get into all three of those threads as we talk about it a little bit more. But for me, it really just felt like it was a way for me to just sort of past two hours. It wasn't 5,000 years. I wasn't in prison, but it did feel like I was kind of in a state of animated suspension where things were happening on the screen, and I sort of got the gist of why they might be important within the world of this movie. And at the same time, I had a really difficult time summoning up enough gumption to even care about them. So that's kind of where this left me. I, I didn't really feel like I felt much at all. And that doesn't seem to be the best way to come away from a passion project movie, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And again, with this movie, it's it's hard for me to escape the feeling when watching these big tentpole level DC movies that they're still kind of trying to reverse engineer the Marvel formula without having really laid the groundwork, which is, leads to situations where we meet an entirely new squad of superheroes, the Justice Society, not to be confused with the Justice League, totally different community of justice. Um, but, you know, you've got Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Adam Smasher, Cyclone, all completely new. And the movie is trying to both introduce us to them as a team while also introducing us to an anti-hero played by its star. And that's a lot for any movie to to bite off. And especially given that Black Adam here is more of an anti-hero than than a straightforward superhero so it's a lot even it's a lot more difficult even to walk the tightrope where he is appropriately morally ambiguous without being straight up evil mm-hmm. that like that that's that's a difficult needle to thread even if he were the only the sole focus of this movie and he's not partly because of lots of other concerns that come crowding in on this and i i don't know i have to wonder if when the rock was conceptualizing the star vehicle for himself and really getting excited about i'm going to make a movie about black adam i don't think he he probably didn't have in mind a movie where black adam kind of feels like part of 
a large ensemble cast rather than the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's where I think the movie did do a few things right, because it was very efficient about introducing the Justice Society. It didn't really feel like we had to pause the movie and go back and learn the origins of each of these members of the Justice Society. You just get um, a really quick cameo from Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, just kind of listing off a couple of superheroes and their powers. You get about 30 seconds of them doing their thing. And then we get back to the main action. And that felt pretty efficient to me. Like, I didn't mind that all that much. I don't really care about the backstories of any of these characters. It's just interesting to know what they're capable of and whether or not this is their first mission together, which I suppose it is. Um, And at the same time, it feels like where that introduction felt a little bit more balanced there's still a bit of a black hole at the center of this movie. And I I really think that the black hole is, unfortunately, Dwayne Johnson. Um, I didn't really get a sense for who Black Adam is for other than himself. Like, there's a lot of talk about him being an anti-hero. There's a lot of talk about him being, you know, the people of Kondak's looked for savior from their oppressors. And yet every single time somebody speaks to him, um, they'll say something along the lines of like, you're our hero, you're our savior, you're what we've been hoping for. And he always just responds with, I'm not that. And that's the only lines that come out of his mouth for probably like the first three quarters of the movie is just whatever you think I am, I'm not that. There's no real motivation that's talked about in depth within the movie. There's no real statement of purpose. He's just there to be the anti whatever everybody else wants him to be. And I find that kind of motivation deeply frustrating because there's nothing really for you to anchor yourself to with this character. It's just that he's there to be a contradiction to everybody else. And I think we can get a little bit into Johnson's performance as Black Adam as well. Um, He also kind of feels like a little bit of a a black hole of charisma, which is really unfortunate because from what I can tell, he seems to be a very charismatic person, especially in person. But whatever he was doing on screen here just really didn't work for me. It just kind of felt like he was just sitting there inert, waiting for somebody to say something so that he could contradict it and then move on with his life. Let's let's talk about that because it it's so strange because I remember when The Rock was first embarking on his movie star career, people were so excited about how he did seem so charismatic and he was sort of a return to the to a certain kind of action hero embodied by somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's not necessarily the greatest thespian in the world, but has a, has an undeniable presence on screen that you just you enjoy watching him do things and crack corny one-liners, and that's just that's part of the whole fun of going to an action movie. Mm-hmm. But yet, with a lot of his latest roles, uh, Jungle Cruise, also directed by the same person who directed Black Adam here, How May Colette Sarah, mm-hmm. um, in that movie and in this one. He he has, well, I mean, in this one, he doesn't have a lot of charm. In Jungle Cruise, he was, he was superficially charming. But I think there's maybe a distinction to be made between charm, which I think The Rock has in spades in almost all of his roles, mm-hmm. and charisma, which I argue he doesn't really exhibit anymore. Mm-hmm. Charm is, is sort of like, you you know, he's likable enough. You, you don't dislike watching him on screen. He's certainly takes up a lot of space um and he's he's got kind of a, a way with a 
with you know cracking a one-liner and you know he he has got the eyebrow mm-hmm. and everything but there's not a whole lot of when, when you when you watch him it's it's not the sort of electrifying screen presence that you think of when you think of someone like who has just charisma to burn mm-hmm. you know somebody like Harrison Ford in Star Wars or Indiana Jones you know somebody who just the the charisma just radiates off the screen and you just you can't wait to watch more movies with him in them. Mm-hmm. And that's not The Rock here. And for all of his in-your-face physicality, I think part of it is that he's just not a very interesting physical actor. Mm-hmm. He kind of just stands. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much anything interesting that he does acting-wise happens from the chin up, mm-hmm. which for an action movie maybe isn't the the best quality. You really need somebody who can be... Um, like a, a Keanu Reeves where he he's it's interesting just to watch him move mm-hmm. and uh, he that's just not what The Rock is doing in this movie and that's really unfortunate yeah yeah you'd think that a former WWE wrestler would be able to communicate right. not, a lot it, it's not body. like it's probably not that he's incapable but for whatever reason he's just not show he's not exhibiting any of it and part of me wonders if there is this mistaking gravitas for stillness potentially and I, I, I maybe like this this is me trying to be as generous as possible with this movie I think because so much of this movie is spent in action like there are a lot of fight scenes there's a lot of action but so much of the time that Johnson spends on screen is him just kind of he's not even touching the ground he's just sort of floating inert six inches above the ground not even really doing very much and kind of appearing bored with the situation that he's in. And I think part of that is the performance and part of that is also just the nature of this character who is anti-everything else around him. So he's not going to be enthusiastic about anything. And because he's a bad guy, I guess we'll sort of like sand off any emotion. Um, And the effect just felt really unfortunately inert to me. And I wonder if he had been willing to be a little bit more dynamic or if there had been just a willingness for him to fight for something, even if that for something is against everything else. Like, it it just felt as though there was so much negation going on both with his character and with the way that he portrays that character that I really couldn't get a good sense for who this character was besides, you know, not that. Which is a really frustrating way to tell a story. Uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a moment towards the end of this movie where... Um uh the the offer of of power and prestige is extended to black adam um and he he kind of uh sits with it for a minute and then he des- then he decides no this doesn't feel right and he uh definitively rejects what's been extended to him mm-hmm. um and again it it feels like in some ways kind of a pose like oh you know this this guy is the sort of person to just grasp at whatever power or is offered to him you know he kind of follows his own path but it feels like you say kind of hollow because there's no ethos undergirding it it's not like black adam is rejecting this offer of prestige because he doesn't believe in that or because he's got kind of this um this deep commitment to uh self-sufficiency and you know no not not being no having no rulers over humanity but he kind of that's not really carried through in any of the other parts of the movie he's kind of just there to be murdery superman (laughs) which which is fair credit where it's due it is kind of entertaining to watch him just kind of casually fling a guy 60 stories into the air and just 
not even look behind him as he crashes back down and presumably dies a horrible death. Mm-hmm. That like there there's a certain kind of like, oh, that's 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 got its own kind of like pleasure, I mm-hmm. guess. If you're if if you're going to make a movie about an antihero, that's not the worst thing in the world to do. But if you're going to try to take that and just stretch it out to feature length, you start to run into problems where it's like, well, there's only so many times he can kind of just be totally cavalier about whatever he's doing and be untouched by any sort of emotion mm-hmm. before you kind of just think, well, I need something to hold on to with this character. Otherwise, why are we watching a movie about him instead of, say, Pierce Brosnan's Dr. Fate, who I think is easily the best part of the movie and partly because Brosnan is able to kind of suggest that that history and that deep well of emotion, even though he's not on screen all that much. And the level of charisma and gravitas, I think. And maybe mm-hmm. that's the amount of experience he also has on screen versus Johnson's as well. I also think that it might be a bit of a structural problem here because the movie starts off kind of action-packed. There's a bit of a prologue where you get a lot of, you know, made-up names about a made-up country and a lot of information about kind of a MacGuffin. But then the moment that Black Adam shows up on the scene, there is kind of a a protracted um, action sequence in which you get a sense for who this guy is or what he, at the very least, like what he's capable of. And to my mind, it almost felt as though the rest of the movie didn't really live up to the promise of that initial action sequence. So, Black Adam wakes up from his tomb slash jail and proceeds to um, beat the stuffing out of all of the uh, invaders who are on his ground, essentially. And there's a moment where he just kind of like looks over and casually pushes a helicopter rotor out of the way into an explosion. And there's a couple of other moments where there's just this this sort of sense of, of grace and casualness about what he's doing. And if the rest of the movie had been able to harness kind of that level of casualness without making it feel like it was repeating the same note over and over again, I think that that might have been a little bit more interesting. And then there's also a little bit of a family backstory for Black Adam as well, where you get a sense of why he would have accepted the level of power that he has in the first place, but it doesn't really feel like it's tied in much into who he is or any of the plot that's going on in the rest of the movie. It kind of feels like the movie's trying to weave together several disparate threads, and if they had managed to draw some interesting lines in between those in a way that had been a little bit more explicit or at the very least cohesive, I think I would have been on board with the whole movie a a little bit more. Um, So there's this thread of injustice towards the weak. There's a thread of trying to mete out justice in an area where you probably haven't been invited to do so. Like there's this question of whether or not the justice society should even be attempting to keep the peace in a part of the world that is literally across the globe from where they're based. And then there's also a question of, well, if you could do this, then why didn't you do this before? So there's there's some interesting questions that are being thrown around, but the movie doesn't really do a very good job of tying all of those together. It just kind of feels as though it's going to raise a question and then just let it hang in the air and then not really try to catch that ball once it's been thrown up. And I think if the movie had been able to tie together Black Adam's quest for revenge and justice from the very beginning of the film, along with those questions of, well, what does justice even mean in a world where we have basically godlike superpowers and superheroes who can 
unequivocally say like what I say goes and what I say is the law. I think that that might have been a lot more interesting than just what we got, which really just felt like a lot of posing and glowering <laughs> and not really anything definitive to say about well, what do you do once there is this world where people have this level of power and they've attained this level of power like if you can cheat death like what's the point of justice afterwards I, and i feel like the movie could have asked that question and then potentially tried to answer it and that would have been really interesting but it doesn't even seem all that interested in the questions to begin with well i mean part of the problem is that there's just not a whole lot of specificity to some of these themes like the you know the the theme of you know oppression of of the weak of uh for uh, of interventionism by American and other foreign powers uh, represented both by the Justice Society and by the bad guys of the film Intergang, which is kind of like this very hazily defined kind of that they're not even really defined. They're basically just like there's a bunch of bad guys who are bad mm -hmm. and somehow they're they're the ones running things in Kandak. But it's all so, so nebulous that there's not a whole lot you can really say about any of it because it's all just it's there to provide a pretext for Black Adam to murder indiscriminately so we don't have to feel morally compromised by the fact that he is just sort of like murdering hundreds of people mm -hmm. over the course of the film. Um, and, but that just means that any attempt it does make to sort of like say literally anything about the sanctity of life or the nature of justice is sort of empty because there's no specificity underlying it. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, a phrase that you used, godlike superpower or godlike powers, mm -hmm. I think, um, because that's something that I think the DC is at least well positioned to examine. So many of its characters are either implicitly or explicitly uh framed as gods mm -hmm. when we saw the you know the Zack snyder four-hour cut of justice league that came out on hbo max mm -hmm. i have my problems with that movie but one thing that i think that it did do well was the the use of the four to three uh academy ratio mm -hmm. the uh where everything is kind of instead of a widescreen presentation it's more of a, a boxy presentation kind of like lends this iconographic sense to superman kind of you know standing in the center of the frame like uh like a religious icon almost mm -hmm. and the way that that movie and other movies like wonder woman um have really kind of posited dc heroes and, and dc characters as not just very powerful people but as as almost gods in relation to the people to the human beings that they're protecting mm -hmm. and um i i that that again is kind of hinted at here with black adam black adam is basically superman who is uh you know jesus christ in the in the dc universe world mm -hmm. um and he's he's repeatedly invoked as sort of the the savior of this nation their champion the one who will fight for them mm -hmm. um the one that they need and Yet that's coupled very uncomfortably with what feels, again, like DC cribbing from Marvel's notes, where there's kind of this running gag throughout the film where uh, a young boy, Amon, who's, who kind of becomes the, the, the little kid sidekick to Black Adam, um, <laughs> says, you know, you have to have a catchphrase because all these other superheroes have catchphrase and his bedroom is plastered with posters of Wonder Woman and Superman. He has, he reads comic books, which is something that the marvel universe does too whereas the mcu very explicitly from the start 
with you know, the very first Iron Man, the very first Captain America is kind of about celebrity. They're, these heroes are celebrities from the word go. It feels very strange to have that coexisting with very spiritually tinged questions of godhood and power and kind of what that means. Mm. Like, I, I don't know what that means in the context of this movie. It's invoked explicitly in dialogue. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the the big bad reveals himself as a demon, mm-hmm. essentially. But I don't know what that really means other than just sort of very surface level shallow signifiers of who the good and bad guys are. Yeah, to me, it feels almost more like a branding question. And maybe that gets a little bit at the difference between Marvel and DC as well, like on a meta level. Marvel has a very specific signature house style, and a lot of those superheroes are, and and I suppose also the the comic books, what little I know of them, a lot of them have to do with how human a lot of these superheroes are. You know, Spider-Man is defined not just by being Spider-Man, but also by being Peter Parker, who is, you know, perpetually late and a little bit nerdy and, and kind of kind of dweeby. And then you have all of these characters like Superman and Wonder Woman on the DC side who feel very much like superhuman in a more iconic way. They feel a little bit more flawless, a little bit more polished. And I don't think that DC as a movie production entity has quite managed to figure out how to communicate that difference in a way that just feels like it's saying not Marvel, but also we're going to crib from Marvel's notes. Um, And I think that's what I find kind of interesting about DC movies is that where Marvel is very kind of predictable and fairly consistent with DC, you never really quite know what you're going to get. And in this case, it feels as though they're trying to crib from the idea of Superman as almost a, a, a branding idea. Like this kid has a lot of different posters and he even explicitly tells Black Adam, like, you're a superhero, you got to have a lunchbox. And that rubbed me the wrong way because it felt a little bit like it was a wink to superheroes are everywhere now. And so we have to talk about them and we have to treat them as like a very important part of the cultural discussion. And in a sense, they are, but you don't get to earn that place in cultural discussion unless you've managed to, I think, say something substantial about what it is to be human and, and the business of being alive in some way. And I think that Black Adam is is sort of gesturing at that a little bit. And obviously, we're, we're spending enough time on this to count it as like we're talking about this. So maybe it succeeded, at least in terms of like... We wanted somebody to spend some some dollars and time and energy and like mental capacity on this. But at the same time, it feels like it's completely failed because there isn't really a sense of, well, what is the point and, and what is the point of living in this world where all of these superheroes are also comic book heroes and they live in the real world and they're branded merchandise. And they're and, gods. And they're gods. Like it feels deeply weird and I can't I can't quite put my finger on it either, but it also kind of feels as though DC is trying to invoke this idea of these people are gods and we're going to look up to them. So every single child is also going to like, want to have every single piece of their merchandise or something. I don't know. Like, I wasn't a superhero kid growing up, but I feel like everybody had, like, a Superman t-shirt at some point or another. I mean, if if you wanted to get really curmudgeonly about the whole thing, you would observe that 
it's the same kind of weirdness of combining God and mammon. Hmm. <laughs> if if you have Superman, who is essentially an inspiring example of goodness and heroism and selflessness and godlike power mm-hmm. to an entire world of people, and yet the way in which they express their devotion is through commerce mm-hmm. by buying his lunchboxes and putting posters up on their walls. That feels strange. I'm not going to say it feels like there, there's anything spiritually wrong with it, but it feels odd. It, it feels odd if if a movie like Black Adam is going to explicitly invoke the idea of of the divine, of the supernatural to some degree, mm-hmm. where these entities are are paragons of cultural virtues and uh, moral aspiration <laughs> um, to dovetail that with uh, kind of the this, the bog standard uh, buy buy our stuff <laughs> like that there, there there's something there that that's not lining up and it feels both it feels either on one hand like it's trying to be too serious about a silly you know superhero pastime that lots of people buy lunch boxes for mm-hmm. or on the other hand it's um, trying to be really light and fun entertainment, but it keeps tripping over its own feet by constantly needing to say, but these these are really like serious godlike beings and, you know, people revere them for what they say to us about <laughs> the heights that humanity can reach if only we are morally upright enough. You know, there, there's, DC needs to pick a lane, essentially. And, <laughs> and I think it can be interesting when it does. The Snyder cut of Justice League was very flawed but when it was asking those kinds of questions it was serious enough about them that i thought it it worked at times Mm -hmm. black adam kind of feels like it's a passion project that doesn't really know what it's passionate about Mm -hmm. yeah and also that feels like it's almost selling itself short you know you have that idea of you have to have the lunchbox or you have to have a catchphrase because every superhero has a catchphrase. But it feels extremely studied and it also feels extremely shallow as though the only thing that Black Adam really was passionate about was just the surface level aesthetics without thinking about what those aesthetics signify. And I find that probably the most frustrating of all, honestly, about this movie is that it's batting around a lot of very interesting ideas, or at least it could have been. But it didn't really stop to consider any of the depths of any of those questions or to dig any deeper. It almost feels incurious about those questions. Oh man, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm talking myself down even further from liking it just based on based on that incuriosity piece. I don't know. It's it just it feels as though the movie is taking everything at a very like credulous face value level where if it had been willing to ask those deep questions or if it had been willing to have Black Adam be kind of a fallible person, even as a character with a lot of godlike powers, I think it would have been a much more compelling story. And I think it would have been a much more interesting one. Yeah, I, I agree. I I think that it would be interesting to see if The Rock, um, now that he's made his passion project and the it's out there in the world, uh, if he has any interest in sort of maybe having that evolution take place mm. o- over the course of what however many sequels are in store for us, I don't even know, but <laughs> they're coming. So hopefully some, some of those sequels will maybe buckle down, make some of these uh, questions uh, more serious and, and uh, 
more interesting to dig into. I sure hope so. Well, listeners, that is our review of Black Adam. It's been out for a while now. So if you've had a chance to catch it in theaters and want to offer your own takes about uh, how well it succeeds as an adaptation of the character or what it says just about uh, spirituality or justice or any of the other myriad questions that it raises, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. We're going to share some of the tweets that we got from you this past week about the horror movies that we're going to be discussing in the Watchlist segment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there helping us keep the conversation about movies going. So, Sarah, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are in spooky season. Mm -hmm. Halloween is upon us. And so uh, to kind of get the conversation swirling around that, you post a question on Twitter that asks listeners, you know, what they thought about horror movies and if they liked them what their favorite horror movies were. Mm -hmm. And also, if they don't, why not? Which I thought was kind of a crucial way to, you know, bring in a few more people into that level of the conversation as well. We got a lot of really good answers to this one. Yep. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to read every single one of them out. So if you wrote in, thank you for for responding and for keeping that conversation going. Um, But for a couple of those responses, we heard from um, Jason Truitt Glenn, who responded, I'm not a fan of horror films in general, but I am a fan of suspense, which can be scary. And I think that it is a crucial distinction here. So um, he goes on to say, overly graphic and sexual violence and the glorification of evil and perversity is counter to what I believe is edifying. It's the difference between signs and the grudge. So, um, Kevin, where do you land on scary movies and horror movies and suspense movies? You know, I have a a lot of uh, sympathy for uh, what Jason says there, because I think at one time that was my perspective on horror films as well. I just I didn't see a whole lot of edification in sitting down for a movie where you would see extreme violence or, or extreme obscenity of various kinds visited upon its characters. As I've gotten more context, I've kind of moved into a place where I'm more accepting of it. But um, it's definitely a genre where it, in in some ways it feels like it's the most accessible of all the genres because, you know, there's lots of people like to go and just kind of like get that, that lizard brain twinge of I just want to watch some scary stuff. <laughs> um, and it's also but at the same time, it's paradoxically also not very accessible because not everybody finds that stuff edifying. And that's also a really valid way to to think about the genre. So I don't know. It's an interesting paradox to explore for sure. And it's a tension that I feel like I've been living with for quite a lot of my life as well. Um, I did not grow up watching scary movies and didn't even really get into horror movies until just a couple of years ago either. Um, I like them. I'm into them. Um, But at the same time, I feel like I have to be in the right place in order to watch them, especially the more extreme they are. Like, I feel like I need to be prepared when there is a movie that involves um, some of those more like primal religious fears for me in particular, and then also movies that involve uh, extreme violence. I have a fairly high tolerance at this point. It's not something that I ever really want to become like fully inured to. It's something that I still want to be sensitive about in a certain way as well. So I, I totally get that tension too. Definitely a, a genre that that uh, begs a, a lot of uh, discernment on the part of the viewer about how to engage with it. So thanks for writing in, Jason. Mm-hmm. We also heard from Zoe Wolf, who responded with love scary movies, favorites rotate, But this year, I would say top five are Ginger Snaps, The Lighthouse, 
House, the Japanese House uh, from 1977, The House of the Devil from 2009, and It Follows from Mm. 2015, which is just an absolutely fabulous lineup. Um, And then they followed up to say, wow, reading that list back to myself and realizing that I must love movies with a bummer ending. (laughs) And that's one of the things that I like about horror movies, too, is you really don't know if you're going to get a bummer ending or not. And that level of suspense and not really knowing the end of the story, I think, can be kind of nerve wracking depending on what night I'm watching them, but I'm into it. Mm, yeah, and it was nice to hear uh, the lighthouse get a call out there from Zoe as well. We heard from Kyle Matthews who says, uh, while I used to avoid horror movies like The Plague for the sake of my ability to sleep at night, I have dabbled with them in the last few years. I must admit that some incredible talent and beautiful art can be found in certain films that otherwise make us uncomfortable. And Kyle also highlights uh, The Lighthouse as a favorite of his. He also uh, has some good words to say about Mandy, the Nicolas Cage bonkers movie that i i don't even really know how to describe what happens in it i've heard like (laughs) phantasmagorical probably phantasmagorical is a great adjective for it perfectly apt uh nicholas cage's uh lady love goes missing and then things go nuts is (laughs) i guess the most apt way i can summarize that movie uh it's a very singular experience, I'll say that much. A singular experience that I'm looking forward to. That's one that I have not seen yet. I've been sitting on it, just waiting for the right moment. Well, uh, let me know what you think of it when you finally do make time for that, because it is a movie that is in a league of its own. <laughs> we also heard from Christian Hammaker, who said, My love of horror as a teen went dormant for decades until last year when my love of the genre was rekindled by Malignant and The Night House. Even M. Night Shyamalan's Old had its freaky moments of body horror. And here's where I got to admit, I have not seen either Malignant or The Night House. Those are two that I need to catch up with. Have you seen either of those? I've seen Malignant. I actually bailed on Malignant the first time I tried watching it because I was just not in a space for horror that night. Didn't realize it until I got about 10 minutes in and it was like, I, I cannot do this. Um, I did end up catching up with it on, I think, a Sunday afternoon with all of the shades drawn with my husband a couple of months ago and had an absolute blast. Hooting, hollering, the whole works. Um, if you're in the mood for some truly wild horror, uh, that's a fun one. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to keep that on on my to-watch list as well. Thanks to everyone who wrote in on Twitter. We, we love hearing your thoughts. And like Sarah said, we got a lot of thoughts to read this week. So we really appreciate all of you who wrote in to uh, talk to us about that. Uh, before we close out, Sarah, I got to ask you, you know, like you're our resident alien uh, fan here. Would you say that that's your favorite horror film of all time? Yeah, but specifically the entire series. I feel like at this point I can't, I, I can definitely distinguish between all of the different alien movies and I love all of them for very different reasons, but they're all kind of inseparable in my head at this point. So when I say I love alien, I also mean, I love Alien Covenant, and I love thinking about (laughs) Alien Resurrection, and I I like all of the aliens, including the bad ones. Um, What about you? Are you... I mean, we've we've had our share of disagreements on on the show uh, since you joined, but I mean, no disagreement here. Alien would probably be my pick for my favorite horror movie. It just, it stands alone. I'm also pretty partial to uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. I Mm. think it's, it's a great movie that its twist has kind of overshadowed its reputation, but I think... I think it's just a, a towering work of, of horror and uh, and suspense. Like uh, if you are more uncomfortable with horror as a genre, I think The Sixth Sense kind of hits a sweet spot where it's scary, but it's not too intense. So 
I, I find myself recommending it a lot. And even if you know the twist, it's still devastating at the end, too. Mm-hmm. Great piece of storytelling. Uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about what I think is a great piece of horror storytelling in our watch list segment with our review of 28 Days Later. So we're going to go to the watch list, which, Kevin, as you know, is the part of the show where every week one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it. And then we come back and we discuss it. And sometimes there's a connection between the new release and the watch list pick. And I think in this case, it was probably just a matter of it's Halloween, it's spooky season. I'm assuming you were just looking for something scary to watch. Yeah, I just, I I, I was thinking about, you know, what could I pair with Black Adam? And I was just coming up blank and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to stress about it too much. It's Halloween. We're going to do a horror movie. Which is a good, a, definitely a good choice. I feel like horror movies honestly are a year round thing for me personally, but you can't go wrong with a horror movie right around Halloween. So listeners, this week, Kevin picked Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, which was written by, I, I don't know if we could call him friend of the show, Alex Garland, but somebody that we like to talk about on Seeing and Believing. Um, and it's It's one of the more iconic, I think, recent zombie movies and one that I've heard about a lot from Reputation, but until this week had not seen. So a quick synopsis. When a group of animal rights activists set an experimented upon chimpanzee free, they unleash more than just a chimp. The animal was infected with the rage virus, which spreads through contact with infected blood and turns anybody who's been infected into a rage-filled monster. The activists become patient zero for the virus, which spreads rapidly across the United Kingdom. 28 days later, a London bicycle courier named Jim, played by Killian Murphy, wakes up from a coma to a deserted city and a world gone strange. And so, Kevin, um, I guess sort of elephant in the room is... This movie came out in 2002. How does it hit in a world where we've been living in a pandemic for almost three years at this point? So engaging it, engaging with it again here in 20 years after it came out, you know, after a worldwide pandemic, I, I think that I still really like this movie. I think it's, it's very good. Mm. Um, I think looking at it with 2022 eyes, what I think it's so good at is it's great at capturing the loneliness of mm. a plague. The, the, not just the, the fact that, you know, uh, many people have in the movie have, have died and, you know, it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic wasteland mm-hmm. uh, in central London and all over England, but just the, the ways in which it frays at the social contract from, with, with the survivors. So, uh, the the survivors in 28 days later, um, the plague has reduced their ability to engage with each other in what used to be a normal way. They There's a lot more mistrust. There's a lot more uh, worry and concern about just basic safety. And that's something that I don't think I fully appreciated back when I first saw this movie, but I really appreciate it now after having kind of gone through our own society-wide fraying of the social contract, which was spurred by the the pandemic. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that it it was, it was a a wild uh, revisit (laughs) for me this year. What what did you think? It's interesting. Um, I think I'm a little bit cooler on this than you, and maybe we can get into that because for me, it's, it's actually mostly probably Alex Garland's fault, Oh, which I find kind of interesting because usually I'm, I'm very into the way that he tells stories. Um, for me, I'm definitely on board with the way that this feels post 
living through like the the opening part of of a worldwide pandemic. I hate saying post COVID because COVID isn't exactly over, but at the same time, post the inception of COVID. Um, and I think that the thing that really resonated for me, especially in the earlier parts of this movie, was the level of paranoia. It also feels very much like an early aughts level of paranoia. So when I think about paranoid cinema, most of the time I'm thinking about the 1970s and the idea that you can't trust anybody from the government specifically. And with early aughts paranoia, it feels a little bit more like you can't trust anybody else at all, especially in a post 9-11 world. And this felt simultaneously very prescient of what it feels like to live through a pandemic and at the same time also very much of its time and maybe that's the cinematography of the movie which feels extremely like digital kind of heavily filtered in places there's a lot of interesting whip pans and and things going on that feel like they both date the movie and then also grounded in a sense of realism of of what it felt like to live in the world post 9-11 And part of that comes with this sense of, like you'd said, the social contract being frayed, where you can't trust anybody because you can't trust whether or not they're going to hurt you. And I think the movie's at its finest when it's really just kind of underlining that sense of loneliness and paranoia, especially in the beginning. Mm. So when Killian Murphy first wakes up, and he's just wandering around London in a set of scrubs with a plastic bag and some cans. Um, part of it is just so deeply jarring because you know that these are places where ordinarily there would be hundreds or thousands of people every single day. It's kind of a marvel of logistics as well because they just shot them very early in the day. They didn't really close down any of these streets. And so it feels deeply tense because you're not entirely sure if you're ever going to come across somebody else. And unlike Jim, Killian Murphy's character, we know that if he comes across anybody else, it's probably not going to be good for him. And he's just looking for another soul to make contact with. I think that the movie's at its best when it's doing something along those lines or when it's with him and his companions that he picks up slowly throughout the movie, just kind of settling into the feeling of, well, this is the world as it is now, and it's never really going to go back to normal for us. Um, And I think of a quiet moment where Jim and um, a couple of other people are camping out at the edge of a ruined abbey that's probably from like the 1200s and they're watching a band of horses and everything's fine for the horses. And Brendan Gleeson, one of Killian Murphy's companions, also like points out at one point, um, well, everything's fine for them. Like, nature is going to go on, and what are we so worried about? And at the same time, like, we have a lot of other things to be worried about. And I think that the tension between those two underlying meanings of that, like, really, really worked for me. Yeah, I, I, that early sequence where with Killian Murphy just wandering around a deserted central London is just utterly iconic. And I think, <laughs> I, at the time this movie came out, I wasn't so into into zombie movies that I had a clear idea of you know what had already been done and what was um, you know what came first. But I do feel like in the years since that sequence has just felt like it's infused a whole lot of post apocalyptic and uh, zombie cinema mm-hmm. <laughs> since it just the the. Like you, I liked how you you point out that watching this in the audience, there is kind of a, a meta tension to it. You're you're just like, 
like how did they get the shot like there's kind of the tension like how did they clear out all the people how how do we not see any cars in the distance or barges on the river and uh and that kind of mirrors the the tension about uh that killian murphy's characters maybe feeling about am i going to meet anybody and what's what what context is that going to come in? Mm-hmm. Um, I also, uh, I know that the digital cinematography is uh, a little bit divisive with this film. It's, it's you know, it's kind of in, in the, in digital cinematography's earlier days. So it's, you know, it's, it's smudgy, it's grainy. Mm-hmm. I think it works like gangbusters because it, it gives the whole movie the feeling of like, it, it makes the movie feel like this was something that was just found in the detritus of central London. Like mm-hmm. this isn't, this is a recorded object that plausibly came from a world that, that ended. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it just, it works so well. And it also works really well to, to make the, the zombies gen, genuinely scary because the, the, the smudginess and, and uh, blurriness of the digital really makes them, difficult to get a bead on there it makes them look faster than they are mm-hmm. and i think this might be the the movie that really popularized fast zombies mm-hmm. in the wider culture and regardless of your feelings about that trend as a whole i think it really it's understandable why this popularized that because i think it works so well in so many different sequences both as suspense and as uh mournfulness and also um uh terror which is different from horror like there's Mm. there's the zombies there's they're scary because they're monsters but they're also there's something uncanny about them Mm. that is difficult to put your finger on i think the cinematography has a lot to do with that as well and i think i was having a, a difficult time putting my finger on what unsettled me about the zombies and Maybe it's because this is one of the zombie movies where the word zombie is never said. I think they refer to them as as the infected. I do appreciate that the camera isn't really quite able to keep up with the infected ever. Like I think that that lent an additional sense of paranoia. I am pro the digital cinematography for this movie. Um, does this even actually count as a zombie movie, though? I feel like zombie movies, you have to be dead and then come back and then be interested in eating people. I mean... <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm splitting hairs here or something. I, 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 I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of agnostic on that. I don't know that it's the most interesting conversation for me to have about the movie. I think that it's spiritually a, a zombie movie in mm. that the the zombies aren't just monsters in in all in good in the best zombie movies going all the way back to night of the living dead the zombies say something about society and humanity hmm. um they they aren't just the fact that they're shambling uh mindless uh eating machines uh isn't just meant to scare you because that idea is scary it's supposed to like make you think about how they're different or even whether they're different from normal people in everyday society and maybe that's my hang-up is i've never really been much of a zombie movie person so maybe that's just personal preference i suppose but probably a lot of it has to do with the fact that the zombies tend to be a metaphor for just society as a whole rather than the individual foibles of humankind or of an individual person so um i'm I'm curious i don't know like even how to to phrase this question but what about this movie 
like what do the zombies in this movie like how do they speak to you i guess i so uh i yeah <laughs> i i'm i'm trying to figure out how to answer this cuz i I feel like it can you can really edge quickly into, you know, kind of chin stroking sort of pontification about yeah. the human condition mm-hmm. when you talk about what the what zombies represent in any given zombie movie. Mm-hmm. I think in this one, um the the fact that they are they are not the the brain dead shamblers of Romero, but they're fast, they're agile, they're savage, and they they you know, it's the rage virus. They literally want to just take out their rage on anything and anyone in their path. Mm-hmm. And I think the climax of the film where Jim, he's not infected, but he essentially has to become uh, one of the infected in order to rescue his friends from the renegade soldiers who have taken them prisoner and going to visit horrible things upon them. Mm-hmm. The The only way that he is able to to affect that rescue is by tapping into that savagery himself. Hmm. And in the uh, in the climax of the film where he essentially murders a man with his bare hands in an extremely brutal and disturbing way, yeah. and then he is standing confronting the person that he came to rescue, and she's not sure whether she's going to whether she needs to chop him because she doesn't know whether he's infected. Mm-hmm. And earlier in the movie, she has said like, "You can't hesitate." When some when you think somebody's infected, you must kill them, mm-hmm. or else they will hurt you. Mm-hmm. And that moment of tension, I think, is what the movie is saying about the human condition with its zombies: is that there's something, there, there's a sickness in the human condition that there, there's a savagery that we can't quite shake, mm. and the thorniness of how it it is an integral part of humanity and doesn't like Jim is not a monster. But he does become monstrous, and and that tension I think is very interesting to think about. About like what what does that say about society and humanity that that's lurking within all of us, and it wasn't something that the virus introduces into us, but maybe unleashes within us. I think that's a, an interesting dimension that. I hadn't seen in other zombie movies up to that point. I think this clarifies um, part of my quibble with Alex Garland's writing. So this this may be a little bit of a roundabout way to get to it, but I think a lot of it has to do with the way that he writes Selena, played by Naomi Harris, who is terrific in this oh, movie. Oh, she's great. She's, she's so wonderful. wonderful. Star-making performance. <laughs> she's, she's so good. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why I'm a little frustrated with the writing is that she's really, truly elevating some of the material that she's been given. But when we first meet her, and specifically when Jim first meets her, she is the one who gives him the advice of you can't hesitate because if you don't do anything, um, you're going to get hurt. And so if I suspect that you have turned, then I will chop you down in a heartbeat. And she's very pragmatic and she's very practical about how she is going to have to approach this new world. And you can tell that this has been kind of a a hard-fought lesson for her, and it's something that she probably had a difficult time accepting, but now that she's accepted it, it's just a way of life now. And then at some point, about the midpoint of the movie, I think, that hardness and that edge starts to break. And it kind of happens after... Jim and Selena come across uh, Brendan Gleeson's character, whose name is escaping me, and his daughter, Hannah. And Selena says of Hannah, 
that she doesn't want Hannah to have to be able to cope with the loss of the world and specifically of her father eventually. Um, she wants Hannah to be able to live. And it kind of feels as though that pragmatic edge has sort of begun to be sanded off of her. And the way that that is presented in the movie, the way that Naomi Harris plays it, I think makes perfect sense because she is softening because she has been around other people that she can trust for the first time in a while. Um, but it also feels as though Alex Garland doesn't really quite know how to write women yet. <laughs> the yet may be debatable depending on how you feel about his writing <laughs> up to more recently. Um, but it almost feels as though because she is the woman in this party, she also has to be the heart and the emotion, and she has to be the one who is thinking about the heart and the emotion and the core and the upbringing of the children in their midst. And so I think part of my frustration was she is such a practical and pragmatic and interesting character up until that point. And then at some point, it almost feels as though a switch flips and she is just turned into she is the grown woman in this party and she has to take care of the younger woman, I guess, really the girl, like the, the teenager in this party as well. And so I don't really quite know how to square how the movie and the script treats her with how Naomi Harris treats her because Naomi Harris plays her again, beautifully as a very well-rounded character with a lot of thoughts and hopes and fears. And the way that she plays her makes me believe that she would be afraid for this teenager, but the way that she's written and the words that are coming out of her mouth, I think, kind of make me think as though she just needed to be the one to say those specifically because of her gender. And the, hmm. at the beginning of the movie, she starts off as she has had to sort of become monstrous herself because she is fighting monsters. And then there's this this reversal right around the same time that the switch flips. Uh, Killian Murphy's character also has to become a little bit more hardened and pragmatic, almost as though he's stepping into that more traditional masculine role. He hasn't been particularly traditionally masculine up until that point. And then once they run into the soldiers, then he kind of has to step into that role and it felt as though it was just because of that was the dictates of the plot if that makes sense mm. i i can see where you're coming from on that i guess my my defense would be that while at the end of the movie uh selena it kind of has gone from being the 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 hardened pragmatic person to somebody who's much more willing to to hesitate before chopping somebody down, who's much more willing to kind of take on a more conventionally feminine role. I think that, number one, I, Danny Boyle, I think, lampshades that by the fact that in the climax, uh, Selena and uh, Hannah have been dressed in very flowy gowns by the men who are going to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that way, they're, they're having this role thrust upon them more than... Um, having it be something that has been uh, freely chosen. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, my, my defense would be that it's partly character growth, but it's, it's also partly just a natural um, journey towards some medium where Jim is actually kind of the, the softer quote unquote person at the beginning of the film and kind of moves in the opposite direction. They sort of meet in the middle mm -hmm. in, a, in a way I think that's that's the that's the reading that I think work makes it work for me. Mm -hmm. I think also with Brendan Gleeson's character uh, being the you know the single parent, he's he's also kind of in a very nurturing role and 
gosh, Gleason will just tear your heart out in this movie. He mm-hmm. is so good. I, I think this is the the role that made me really love Gleason as an actor. I think he's tremendous in it. But I think he also is kind of in a in a more uh, blended role where he is he is a nurturing parent, but he is also the defender mm-hmm. and the the combination of those two roles is i think is partly what boyle is doing with this with garland's script here is is exploring how these extreme situations is forcing them to to grow in ways that they hadn't necessarily anticipated i suppose so i think i was still feeling a lot of that tension around that scene where selena and and um hannah are, are forced to wear those dresses it felt as though yes the soldiers are imposing a specific and, and awful role on these two women and the movie very clearly condemns that and yet at the same time it almost feels as though the movie is trying to force these two characters into that damsel in distress position without really fully thinking about or interrogating that position beyond just this is what would happen if if you were stuck in a barracks with nine soldiers who haven't seen a woman in in a month um and it feels a little bit gross to me because it feels a little bit unexamined or it i think it would bother me a little bit less if so many other action movies didn't already resort to this trope unstudied. Hmm. I think if it weren't so much of a problem across storytelling in general, then it wouldn't be quite so much of a problem for me for this movie. But because it feels like it is both a shorthand of damsel in distress and then also a shorthand of these guys are putting these women into a position that they don't want to be in... um, the message gets a little bit muddled there. And I don't think that there needs to be a message necessarily, but that detail did leave me wondering, like, well, how do you tell this story in a way that doesn't negate these characters' personhood alongside the soldiers negating their personhood? And I'm not entirely sure that you can do that with a simple wardrobe change. Hmm. So I don't know. It kind of left a sour taste in my mouth, but I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> and... If, if I could articulate, I think, a little bit better how or why that bothered me beyond just I've seen this before and I know where that road is going, then I, I think that I would have a slightly better critique of it. But at this point, it's just it leaves a sour taste in my mouth specifically because it does feel like shorthand that feels kind of lazy, which is a little bit disappointing coming from Garland and, and Danny Boyle, who I, I like their collective output and I like the other stories that they've told. And in this one, it just feels a little bit unpolished and a little bit too forced. I mean, for whatever it's worth, I you're you're not the first person I've heard to to critique the the film's third act as being the the weakest of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's fair. The film is the film's first two acts are definitely its strongest. And I think what I what I love about the those first two acts is all four of these principal characters are act written and acted so well Mm. that they feel so they feel crystallized to me (laughs) like they they feel like real people to the point where uh in in the final act where they're thrust into an extreme situation an even more extreme situation than they're already in and forced to uh, react and maybe contort themselves in ways they wouldn't necessarily naturally have done. Um, that that feels like it works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I mean I'm 
maybe more easily able to to hand wave it away. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've heard that critique made of it uh, from other people as well. So, you, you know, it's not just you, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, for what it's worth, I'm also very much on board with those first two acts, especially. Um, I think, like I'd said before, zombie movies, probably not my favorite subgenre of horror, but this one, I think, made me get a little bit more into why they appeal. Hmm. And I, I don't know, it, it made me curious to can, go out and explore a little bit more. Can, can you talk a little bit about how or why it did that? I, I'm I'm curious because I know you like other <laughs> silver screen monsters. So yeah. I want to know, I, I guess I'm curious to hear what is it about zombies that you find less compelling and how did this maybe slightly turn you around a little bit on it. I, I find zombies to be kind of monolithic on a, on a certain level. A lot of a lot of it feels like you've seen one zombie movie, you've sort of seen them all. And in some cases, like these ones run, but they're just, they're also just zombies. Um, and in this case, I think that level of terror and that level of we have to figure out the logistics of being alive without getting into just the... I don't know. A, a lot of zombie movies also feel as though it's just the spreading of contagion. And in this case, that's already happened. I, I appreciate that they kind of elide the first 28 days of the apocalypse and allow you to acclimate to the world through somebody who's just been sort of thrust into it and has to learn these new rules, but doesn't have to learn these new rules because they're sort of being made up on the fly. Um yeah, I don't know. The zombies to me just feel kind of like they're a little bit interchangeable as opposed to, you know, your your typical like the alien is so idiosyncratic, for example, or vampires can be very idiosyncratic because there are so many different ways that you can express that kind of monster. And this one, yeah, the zombies are a little bit idiosyncratic, but it's not even really about the zombies. It's about the people who are having to learn to live with them. And the more stories I can find that have to do with that angle and that tension, I think the more into that subgenre I'll probably be. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, this could maybe encourage you in, in that area because, yeah. to be fair, zombies kind of got played out. Oh, for, yeah. Like, I think we're, we're in a, a world now where people are just like the prospect of another you know, Walking Dead is just like, oh my goodness! Mm -hmm. I I couldn't I couldn't believe actually that the Walking Dead uh, series on AMC was still going mm -hmm. until I, I it it boggles the mind. It feels like we're past that in a lot of ways. But mm -hmm. um, that said, I'm I'm glad that this could maybe encourage you a little bit in in that in that area. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, that does it for uh, this week's watch list segment. Uh, we are now that Halloween is going to be in our rearview mirror when we record our next episode, mm -hmm. we're going full bore into award season. Mm -hmm. The schedule is getting packed out. It's going to uh, be a busy time of year for both of us. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about James Gray's Armageddon time mm -hmm. uh, for our new release review. And you've got, uh, a barn burner of a uh, of a watch list pick f to pair with it. I definitely do. So Armageddon Time, I don't know a ton about, but I do know that it's one of those like sort of semi-memoir movies about the director's own life in a way, maybe fictionalized, maybe shown through a slightly different lens. So um, I ended up going with another idiosyncratic director who I admire, who is also telling a story about his own past in a very idiosyncratic way. I ended up picking Andre Tarkovsky's 1975 movie Mirror, which I'm very excited to share with you. I'm excited to watch it too because, uh, you know, obviously I haven't seen it, but 
there is one shot that I've seen kind of like a gif of or something. Oh, yeah. That uh, is, I believe it's of uh, wind blowing through grass. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the most beautiful images I've ever seen. And so I'm really excited to watch it in context in the, you know, in the entire film. So you're going to get a a wealth of beautiful images with this one. And the nice thing too, listeners, if you want to watch along, um, mirror is available to stream and to rent on a variety of places, but it's also available legally and for free on YouTube. It's been uploaded by Moss film. Um, so if you would like to watch along, definitely please join us. Sounds like a great way to to spend a Saturday evening for sure. Looking forward to doing that myself anyway, this, this weekend for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.